Welcome to the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. My name is Kelly Rehan, Content Manager for The Almanac, the online publication of the Alliance. In this episode, we continue Dr. Brian McGowan's Legends interview series with featured guest, Dr. Bob Fox. Listen as Dr. Fox shares how pursuing a career in adult learning helped him answer a big question. How does change occur? If you like what you hear today, subscribe or leave a review where you listen to podcasts. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Fox. Dr. Fox, do you mind if I call you Bob? Sure. So you're familiar with some of the themes that we're going to discuss with each of the interviews. We try to walk through the origin story, dig a little bit into the early career, work through some of the seminal research, and then maybe do a little forecasting or future telling if we can. So if you're willing to, you and I have had this conversation before, but for those that are listening, could you walk us through a little bit the very early career, the education and early training? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's uh, something I don't want to get bogged down in because anytime an old man talks about his past, it's easy to get lost. Basically, I was in the Air Force like Joe Green, but I joined to avoid the Vietnam War and ended up in Southeast Asia anyway. Took a couple of courses. I was an Appalachian boy, didn't know anything, and took a couple of courses in college at the University of Maryland while I was there and ended up uh, as an air traffic controller and got out of that into the university and became a civil rights guy, and an anti-war guy, and studied sociology and history and and did well and, and enjoyed it tremendously. But I'd come from a family where my father had a 10th grade education, my mother had a fourth grade education, and I was the first one to graduate from high school in the whole family. So I heard Joe say he was the first one to get out of college, and I really want to one-up him on that a little bit. <laughs> so... Nice. So I, I got out and I went to work in the uh, university's evening college with adult learners and had an interest, of course, from civil rights and other things in change in change theory and as an undergraduate. And I found my way into adult education as a way of bringing about social and individual change. So the devotion to change is as old as I am. And it's embedded in the university, of course, in my experiences in learning about adult education, but it's also embedded in the kind of real life business of looking around you and finding people who are up against barriers or who would have been great. My mother would have been great if she'd gotten to the opportunities that I had, for example. And so when you're sort of oriented that way, you're looking for a legitimate way to bring about change. I thought about law school. I decided and have since feel that it's true that a life of conflict would not be what I would want for myself. So I ended up in adult education quite accidentally, but it was a natural flow from my childhood right through to that point. And I studied and was interested in, from the beginning, change. How does, how does change occur? Makes sense if you think about the things that I was interested in, anti-war movement, et cetera, all that stuff. So how does change occur? And that's really what I wanted to know. And I spent time in my master's trying to understand Major vehicles of change started and was kicked out of the Tennessee State Prison doing a master's thesis in prison education because that was one of the great change strategies was to incarcerate people and either rehabilitate them or punish them. And so that was weird. And then I met Malcolm Knowles. And Malcolm said, would you come to North Carolina State? We'll give you a scholarship. I said, sure. 
So it wasn't quite that easy. I was married at the time. There was a whole lot of stuff hit the fan <laughs> with, with that kind of move. But so I went to North Carolina State to get the, the doctorate and studied with Malcolm, of course, and with others who were great and focused again entirely on it. I always had more sociology, social psychology than education courses and more research courses because by then it was clear I wanted to do research, not Malcolm's kind, which was brilliant writing and synthesis, and not Dave's kind, which is brilliant use of a single method over a long period of time, but really become sort of a eclectic researcher who could bounce around methods and do things quite differently. And so I finished my doctorate and took a job at, at the medical school at East Tennessee State University, a brand new medical school. And they wanted education to be built in, and so they hired me in as a new PhD type. I was an education doctorate, but that's all we had back then. And I went into that school, and I uh, didn't want to because I wanted to serve people who were poor and needed to learn. And Malcolm said, your problem is you're prejudiced, Bob. You don't believe that rich people need to learn, too. <laughs> It was a great life-changing kind of uh, event because I didn't know if I wanted to work with doctors or not. I didn't know if I thought they were privileged and et cetera. Sure, so cer certainly. I think you set that up so much with like the background of civil unrest and the changes that you have. I feel like in each of the recent episodes, I right here about three or four minutes in, I have to pause somebody and say, could you unpack? random connections to Malcolm Knowles or Alan Knox. And and so serendipity, like how did your path cross with Malcolm? What was he to you at that time? And what did how did your relationship evolve? Well, Malcolm at that point was the leading figure in the world. He was in his 60s in the field. And I was a master's student in adult education. And he came to speak to the Adult Education Association of Tennessee, which I was a member of and finagled a way to drive him from the airport in Knoxville to Grattenburg to the conference, have lunch with him and drive him back. And I ended up with three and a half, four hours with Malcolm Knowles, and it was one-on-one -on -one time. And I don't think I ever had that much time again, by the way, and not in a single sitting. And Malcolm was just this, I think great people are soft. A lot of people think they're hard. I think they're soft. He was a soft man. He, he wanted to hear about what I thought, and he wanted to tell me about some things he had thought about. And so He was a very kind soul and had more to say than I could possibly interpret. When I talked to Don, Don Moore, which is another episode coming out, his connection to Alan Knox was his downstairs neighbor in married housing at the university happened to be in the education program. And said, I think you guys would like yeah. to connect, right? Just that serendipity, we're seeing the impacts of it. It's the butterfly effect. We're seeing the impacts sure. of it years later. Yeah, yeah. Now that was it. And, uh, and once I took my path, Malcolm and I sort of kept in touch. But like most mentoring relationships, they, they start off very intense and heavy. And then over time, as people grow, they sometimes grow in different directions. I, we always liked each other. We were always friends, but there wasn't as much uh, of a commonality in the way we looked at adult education after a while. Many things he said have never left me, and 
sometimes I can't tell whether I'm speaking from my mind or his. And I think that's one of the things that happens with mentoring. All right, so it's a beautiful story. And for those who are interested, Bob actually wrote a memorial piece on Malcolm that was published in JSEP in 98. People want to look that out. It's many, many kind words in there. The Alliance is introducing a new way for you to gain the CPD education you need in an all new flexible format. With the Alliance experience, you can attend our virtual annual conference, Alliance Learning Labs, and Alliance Connect. Learn more and register at acehp.org. So from my notes, it sounds like shortly after leaving prison, well, uh, your prison research right. project, just to be clear. So could you walk me through early career and types of specific research questions came to mind? Once I was uh, involved in, in the medical school, I was uh, within the first year, Malcolm was invited to debate someone at the national meeting of, of, of the then uh, now SACME, the Society of Medical College Directors of CME. And Malcolm said, I can't go, but you've got a brilliant young man who can go in my stead. And I'm, I'm very proud he said that about me. I'm not sure he's, he's all that clean about it. But so he said, uh, let Bob Fox debate. And the question was, are doctors adult learners? Now, that today sounds like a question that we could, none of us could possibly ask without laughing out loud or having another drink. But in fact, back then, the question was, should we be teaching doctors in the ways of pedagogy or andragogy? And so that was the theme. And of course, I was deeply honored. I had met Paul Masmanian at a lifelong learning conference. He was my only friend in CME at that time. I was working as an assistant professor in medical education and working with CME as part of my work. And so I went to the meeting in Columbus, Ohio, and I had prepared to the extent that if I had been a fox in a barnyard, I would have eaten every chicken <laughs> and the bones. <laughs> And I was completely ready for a debate. And it was really a friendly discussion and not a debate, but I was fiercely able to defend because of so much preparation time. The idea that how could you think that these, these people who are among the brightest people in the world who are sorted out by society for their incredible minds, you know, we don't say that much, but we all know, all of us know that this is a top of the pyramid. And how could, how could they not be adult learners and practice medicine successfully? How could they possibly? And of course, the number one thing was they have to be adult learners because they change. And they change constantly. And Do you remember what year this Columbus, Ohio meeting was? Uh, Approximately? Probably 80. Okay. 1980. I feel like I've yeah. applied, and I don't know... I, Maybe there's literature, a specific piece of literature I'm thinking of. I've always applied Andrew Goji to 1980 Malcolm Knowles. I don't know if there was a book chapter or a book he wrote at that point. Yeah, no. It was always like the, the pin I put in my calendar. Yeah, it's called The Modern Practice of Adult Education. 1980, it's his book on program planning, which was one of the most important books that was written. And of course, the researchers criticized it because it was synthesis of other people's research. And in truth... So much of it was exactly, I mean, I think the, the first real attention to the word needs assessment comes in that book. 
and his notion the five his five assumptions about adult learners, including that they learn from experience and they're problem solvers. And those were central concepts to what we've all done since that day. So 1979, you write a piece on continuing education evaluation, looking back, looking forward, thinking through. You're a middle author, yeah. which makes me think you're still a graduate student? Or 1979 junior. was my year of graduation. With the EDD? Right. Okay. Yeah. And so what you accomplished, and I think we'll cover a few of the seminal pieces between 79 and let's just call through the 80s, maybe as important to anything that's happened in our profession. So I'd like to kind of touch on two different things. One is the seminal focus early in the 80s on discrepancy analysis. And right. right and, and so it sounds, what I gather, you were not the lone individual educational scientist at that time digging into it, that it really was maybe the hot topic of that time or, or like a burgeoning recognition of just how rigorous we should be with this idea of planning and gap analysis. Is that fair? I think it's fair. And, and in truth, one of Malcolm's assumption was that we as adults try to solve our needs. We try to meet our needs and we try to do that intellectually. At the same time, Knox was writing about something called proficiency theory, which was the same kind of thing but it was more about professionalism than it was just about adult learners. So it was a hot topic and it was something to worry about. But the way it came to me was honestly out of the change study. The way it came to me was, although I've been influenced by these writings, when doctors talked about how they made a change, one of the most critical things they talked about was this period of time when they felt the forces for change, but they imagined what it would look like if they did it differently. They imagined what it would be like to do a surgery that was done with in a different manner or to use a drug that would have a different outcome or to find a diagnostic test that replaced the one they'd been using or that, and those are sort of microscopic. Those changes sometimes were as big as a pathologist who decided to become a psychiatrist by cross-training. So it was a very, you know, important thing to me that they had this ability to imagine what ought to be. And that's where we started. What you know, because if they could imagine that clearly, they made fairly controlled and regular changes about that. If they could not imagine it clearly, if they had no sense of that, it took them years to make the change. They were floundering and and reading all kinds of things and unable to get themselves sorted out. And so when I ask about that, they'd say, "Well, that's because I need to be, you know, this is what I am." And this is the path I'm trying to take. So discrepancy analysis is almost entirely a product of those 400 and something interviews that we did in the change study. Where most of the doctors who made changes, no matter the size of the change, talked about what it was like to imagine what it would be like if the change were in place. And so, I think that... So, yeah, so, so if we can go back, I, I, I just for those that are new listeners to this podcast or some of this information is new to them. Could you, so 1981, 1982 seems to be kind of the date of an initial meeting. Could you give us a really basic explanation of the background of the change study? And then we'll, we'll get sure. into it. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I, I greatly enjoyed my relationships with many people in the field, including Paul Masmanian. He and I were the two adult educators at that point in the, in the operation that were really uh, sort of on top of it. 
and I was an air traffic controller, I think I mentioned that, we were flying in Chicago. We had come to make a proposal for a research project that we wanted to do. It wasn't exactly the change study, but it was close. And on the final approach into the airport, the plane was rocking. I was a controller. When a plane goes down, the way you understand a crash is you reconstruct the flight and the plane. And so at that moment, I was telling Paul about that, and we came to the conclusion that what we need to do is reconstruct change. We needed to look at the outcome, and from the outcome, reconstruct what it was that led to the change, no matter if that was education, no matter what that was that was there. We needed to, to look at change as something as different as a plane crash and that had a pathway, that had markers on the pathway, that had uh, accidents and brilliance and all kinds of things that are necessary um, you know, to reconstruct a story. So we set about a study to reconstruct as many stories of change as we could. It really, it really isn't a brilliant thing. It really is quite a logical, ordinary thing. But it caught the um, imaginations of the doctors and, and the educationalists who were in the room when we made the proposal. And we ended up, of course, pursuing that with pilot interviews. It was a very long process. It took five years to do the whole thing. And as much as anything, what made it matter was some concepts that we thought were essential to understand change. One is educationalists cannot by themselves understand change, period. It's medicine. On the other hand, doctors, because they are practicing medicine, are like fathers. They don't understand parenthood. They have to have a partner. And so we created a world of partners. Always, every chapter, every research team, every everything that went on from that point forward. And really, that concluded all the books that we did, David Davis and I and Paul and I, that went on to happen. We always insisted in every chapter, every piece of writing had the eyes of both the educationalist and the physician to interpret the events and, and the literature and the conclusions together. And I'm very proud of that single concept. It's one of the first things I ever learned from you is A, the concept of the dyad and B, your passion for it. Like just, it just made sense. And I think you also went on in separate conversations, the two of us have had to say that one of the challenges our community has had is that the presence of those dyads started to deteriorate into the late 80s and 90s. And it was basically just educators and even business managers in many cases running offices. Does that sound true? Like the absence well, of that dyad? Yeah, I think that, that what we have seen is two things that interact. One is, as we become better at understanding education, strictly educational issues have become clearer, making it a little more legitimate for educationalists to do some of the work on their own. And the second thing is, we've created a world in that we, and I really do mean we, I don't mean me, created a world where We've made concepts of learning and development and change so um, uh, straightforward that doctors are able to master them. And it's not that doctors are slow, but it's um, they, in fact, have all of the equipment they need to master these concepts intellectually. What they have not had is the ability to directly work out what it means. I mean, the construction of meaning is the business of learning. 
and the construction of meaning that we've been able to create in dyads with doctors has enabled the material to be more digestible. It's just been more understandable. And so we have some really brilliant doctors who are writing things that are very worthwhile. I will continue to believe that Paul Masmanian and Dave Davis together are better than Paul Masmanian or Dave Davis separately. And that's a one analogy. I've got my own partners that I've worked with all the years, including Dave, of course, and Barb and others. And I don't think it's an unusual concept right now. But the next steps are going to require that we redo some of these things. We remake a world where doctors and educationalists sit together and try to sort things out together. Listen, so much of the change study was teams of two to five people from both fields uh, having three drinks and an idea. Being an Alliance member has its perks, from discounts to industry-leading events like the Alliance Annual Conference to members-only access to the Alliance Learning Center. The Alliance is where healthcare CE professionals come to learn. Visit acehp.org slash membership to join today. Okay, so you let's go back to to the change study experience then. So your your air traffic controllers reconstructing an accident hundreds and hundreds of times. Tell me about a change that happened. Tell me about the antecedents of that change. Tell me where you were mentally at that time of change. Can you walk through the methods of that? Because I think this is something that you have often shared as a, kind of a key lesson. And, and in many ways, one of the most important things to happen from the change study is just the people and how they work together. Yeah, the, the methods, you know, the technical words are grounded theory, of course. And grounded theory is really about using a, a sort of a rational positivist approach to listening to the stories of people about how things happened, and from that, trying to construct explanations. So theory itself is no more or less than a body of explanations and predictions that leads to a testable hypothesis or a verifiable conclusion. And we built the study around that idea that if we could have, if we could send these people out, doctors and educationalists individually, to interview physicians, number one, they would find change. And that was a, a scary idea because some people thought they wouldn't. We only found three out of 400 that didn't change. So change was prevalent. Um, do, you think those then, three, do you think those three really didn't change? Or do you think they just really, really struggled with articulating or recognizing what change looked like in their own practice or, or lives? It's a measurement error. <laughs> so I don't believe it, but I, I believe that the interviewer was, we always said the interview technique, the interviewer is the method, the interviewer is his instrument. And so we had to train the interviewers for like six days or yeah, to get them ready to go out and do the interviews. So, so the purpose wasn't to get it. Uh, uh, in fact, we never recorded interviews. The purpose was to get at the concepts, the ideas that would describe the experiences the doctors related to us in the stories, and then to order those concepts into propositions, and those propositions then into ultimately into a theory of learning and change, which would lead to hypothesis, which would guide the field for 20 years. And so we really did, I mean, there's nothing more foolish than youth or, or more admirable 
And so we absolutely were unafraid to proclaim that we were going to change the world. And we did. And, and we did it because there were 44 of us changing the world, not me. Uh, right? It was just this incredible, I wish everyone could have had the experience that we all had together. Those people who did that work together, all 44 interviewers, and then 25 of them became writers. And and believe me, that the interviewers weren't uniform of uniform quality, but the concepts always surfaced. The concepts and the relationships between um, self you know, the, the image of change and how that affected them, how long it took to change and the resources they used and the size of the change and scope. And so it, it was um, it was a fantastic experience intellectually, of course. And we did that by analyzing the data to a certain level and then handing it to them after we decided that the force for change was curiosity, giving it to a team of people who would look at curiosity and tease out the literature and what that all meant. And so it was really this massive class of learners who were doing interviews and at the same time grappling with adult learning theory and uh, social theory and, and change theory and putting it all together. And I think the people that were involved would tell you today that they sat together and talked at a higher level than they've talked for years. And for the interviews, you guys were just, you'd walk in with your iPhone 10, put it down on the desk, and then just take all the data and plug it into Excel spreadsheets, right? Yeah, pretty much. That that trained our parents to sit on our shoulder and write. Yeah, we did. That's what we did. Yeah. We, and, we took, we took I mean, note cards. That's what we did. Right. So, so even go through. So this is qualitative analysis of yeah. almost sentence by sentence of near of three to 400 interviews that's then being coded and shared. And then there's consensus around the intention and then that's all backed out. So for those that are ever interested in the book, if you go to chapter 12, like you almost feel like chapter 12 is the deconstruction of the themes, just to be a fly on the wall in that room. Those Well, it, it was a deconstruction of the themes and you're right, you're right to observe that. And it was uh, also the product. It was the product, 12 was, in the end, this is what we believe is true about how they learn. And some of those things took off and became very much part of our world. And some of them sit today in Chapter 12 or unattended to. For example, um, hardly anyone ever picked up on the four different ways or four different degrees of change that could occur. And the last of which was one called perspective transformation, which was an incredibly important idea at that time in adult education but nobody thought it was true in medicine. Everybody thought that changing was the new prescription. Little did they know that there were doctors who were making not many, of course, 400, maybe 30, maybe 30 or 40 cases of this, where they were changing the entire worldview, their, their whole sense of what a doctor was and what a doctor did. And that's a very big thing compared to taking a new prescription in the same class of drugs. Can you describe a little bit more that could you name drop for us? Can you tell us who these folks, your of your colleagues, co-researchers, uh, co-authors of the change study. Can you just share a few of the names so people kind of get a sense of who was in the, those rooms? The primary team was me, Paul Mesmanian, and Wayne Putnam, who is a general practitioner out of Halifax, uh, a family doc out of Halifax. And that team then had authors eventually, 
and that included John Parvising, Jocelyn Lockyer, Marty Hotbed, Marty Kantrowitz, Dave Davis, of course. You know, it, it's pretty much, I think we looked at every president of the Society of the Alliance for the next 10 years. We're, we're in the change study or we're affiliated with it as a co-sponsor, an officer who was done or an interviewer, right? And so there was, uh, it, it was just really an amazing thing. Yeah. The other half of that sentence, it was pretty much the, like, you want to say the who's who, you want to say kind of like the, I don't know what's the proper balance of the compliment, the accolade there, but I've always wondered since the change study, where that next opportunity is to identify those folks. That idea that you can pull these folks together and you build this tight, closed group cadre of of research scientists who now have the similar shared set of tools and belief. And you're all coming from different tasks, right? Like very different training individuals in that room. And you walked away with the full kit because you go on in some of your writings to describe how after the change study, one of the biggest challenges is for the research agenda of our community is that there the methodological considerations became overwhelming of the research questions. Like people were struggling to work through it and you never found, the community never found a consensus or a standardization of terms. And so you couldn't pull the theory through to the validation in any consistent or replicable way. So after the change study, the experience being everything it is and this tome, the book being as important as it is, things you wish you would have would have gone differently, things you wish would have gone quicker, things that you feel are still in the pages but weren't really applied much? Yeah, there, I have a lot of a lot of those things. But overall, I'm pretty pleased with how all that went. So I don't want to overstate that, that the number of things that I wish were different. I think that what would have been better is if we had had the Alliance and SACME together on the project, working with it, integrated with the journal, integrated with the publishing source. I think it would have gone better if the society, the SMC, DCME, the SACME, if they had published it themselves as opposed to, we got a, a private academic publisher and they were always struggling with the idea of publishing a single study. So it was a radically different thing to publish it. It was a big, important thing, and it shouldn't have been in a journal reduced to 15 pages. It should have been deep enough so that the field could read it over, and if they were interested in curiosity, they could get the literature on curiosity right there with the data, and that was an important concept. So there was there were things like that, mechanical and structural things, things that I, that I think that if it were redone today, it would be it would be twice as good. It would be twice as important. Do you think the research needs to be redone today, or do you think there would be some significant benefit if we could apply today's dissemination strategies and opportunities to apply them back to the change study? The answer to the question is short. The short answer to the question is that the study was done to create a body of theory that would explain change. I don't think we've explained change yet. And so just like anthropology, you don't go in with one tribe and understand how it is that tribal life works. And at one time, and 
the real deal here is the time. If you know, fantasies of you know, as you know, Karen is interested in my wife is interested in and does research like this too. And we watch the SARS virus come through, and now we watch this come through. And if you can imagine, if you and the listeners can imagine the incredible complexity of learning that has had to go on to keep people alive, to endure the pandemic, to uh, protect yourself, to understand the symptoms, to uh, deal with monoclonal and polyclonal antibodies and how do you put those, da-da-da-da-da, right? Mm -hmm. So I can go on like a long time. And that was a response to a national crisis. That's a plane crash I'd like to understand. And I'd like to understand it because I believe, and I bet most of the people that are listening to this believe, that the primary treatment that's been successful with these patients has been the learning of the clinicians. They have learned how to do this. And they've learned to do it with mop mop handles and not uh, high-precision technical equipment. They've learned to do this by listening, watching, observing, experiencing, reflecting, contemplating, discussing, looking, experimenting, experiencing again and again and again. And it's all the stuff that you and I and everyone who's ever done this work has talked about for decades. And yet in this, in this crisis, when we could have all been standing by the bedside quietly, dangerously, but quietly, watching this occur and watching these great minds of these, of these everyday clinicians go through, they died, why did they die? They didn't die. Why didn't they die? Is sorting out all of this stuff. And I believe that at the very top of the field, the scientists, the clinical scientists, were no different than the ones at the bottom of the field at certain points in this, because at certain points in this, this was a wildly out of control situation that they had no hope. We now have three vaccines. Uh, yep. Some scientists somewhere got us there, sort of, but really... It is the learning that's going on in the clinical practice that saved us from bleeding to death at the crash site. And when the discrepancy study, the discrepancy publication was republished, you remember this? Like years later, Jason came back and the editor called out that, I think it's the line in there that basically says, given all this complexity, CME professionals should focus on measuring what they can specifically measure which may not be patient outcomes, it may not be physician performance, but for us to do our part in all of this, we should measure the things that we can tie more directly causally. Does that feel right to you? Do you think that's still true? It is, it is a matter of orientation and approach and focus. And so orientation is, is towards the outcome, always. And so that almost always has to be in, in the mind of anyone doing research on this. So you have that, uh, then you have the approach, and that is what part of the world are you going to carve off and look at? And then you have focus. And so this applies to focus. There are things that I will never be able to measure outcomes without an expert, a scientist, or a clinician at my side. I will never be able to do it. Uh, not clinically relevant, not health, not health outcomes. But on the other hand, I can always be oriented towards those outcomes in my planning and my thinking and my approach. And discrepancy, that, that article was about explaining outcomes in terms of proficiency and personal performance and explaining performance in terms of competence. And it was a desire to say that this will always be 
not fully overlapping Venn diagrams, but connected Venn diagrams with parts that are interactive and parts that are solitary. And that complexity is what we have to pay attention to. And there's a part of those, those Venn diagrams that we're good at, really good at, and that's our focus. And we build from that focus. But, you, but it's, it's very much like flying a plane or driving a car. When you drive your car, you're not oblivious to everything around you, even though you are tightly focused. And you are alert to the possibility. And a great driver can do that without thought. And it's an amazing thing. If we look at this and say, what, what is our job? It may be that that's a pretty good metaphor. As researchers, we must have focus. We must know what it is we're staring at and what's happening to it. But at the same time, we, have, we operate within a context, within a, a broader framework of activity that we, we play a part in. And so that context-bound stuff must influence the focus and the focus the context. And that's not an unusual idea. I'm sure that this is tedious for many of the people listening because I'm stating something so obvious. In that statement is, oddly enough, there's like a humility that you don't have to try to convince people that any educational intervention you build or plan is going to impact a patient's life. You have to have that awareness. And I think what we see too frequently is people trying to say that the only thing that matters then is that final outcome. And they make these hyperbolic statements and promises that I think to you and I, we would look at those statements and promises and basically discount everything else that they're working on. Like if, if you think that A is going to equal B, then I'm, I'm questioning a lot of the other things that you're intending. So I think in some respects, on the surface, people in our community would be taken aback by the idea that a CME intervention or a CME profession. I think your separation of focus versus orientation is critical here. I've not heard it that, I've never heard it stated that way. And I think that this community could do a tremendous amount of good for themselves to understand that we should be patient and health oriented and we should be focused on the learner and the learning experiences. Is that, am I misstating that? I think, no, I think that's a, a very good statement, a very appropriate statement. So we have just spent 35 minutes talking about the mid-80s, and yet your career continued to go on after that. The way I understand it is that most of, and even if I go through publications and stuff, that it seems like at some point you left academia, and or while you were in academia, you shifted to basically trying to apply the change study. And so a lot of consulting. Can you tell us a little bit about how those efforts worked and maybe where you were able to find the validity and successes? You know, the backdrop for me, and like most people in our field, is that I spent full-time as a professor of education and a full-time teaching graduate students and doing other things. And most of those people were not in health fields. They were architects or engineers or as well as, as physicians and and people in the health profession. So that was a backdrop for me for all of this. And in all of the teaching, teaching is an invaluable activity because no matter how good you are at research, if nobody understands what you've done or cares, it doesn't matter much that you've done it. You really have to be able to translate research into practice. And so I had spent 20 years trying to develop a foundation of, of explanation 
that left. See, all explanation leads to solutions where the explanation is faulty. If we explain a disease, it leads to a solution. If we cannot explain it, it's impossible to lead to a solution from it. So I wanted to move to the next stage. In my last stage of my career, I wanted to devote myself to translating explanation into practice, translating explanation into solutions. And so I spent a lot of time working with people who are actively doing this stuff. Laboratories were my business at that moment. And the consulting deals that I took on were all around the notion of, can this be a laboratory where you take it and put it to work? And some of those were with uh, pharmaceutical companies, some of it with things like the Royal College of Physicians, some of it with the Institute of Medicine in the last book on um, redesigning continuing health professions. And, and some of it was on the AO Foundation, this incredible Swiss uh, foundation that it trains 44,000 surgeons a year in uh, principles and advances in orthopedic surgery. And so, and they just embraced everything and said, we want to do it all and do it just right. And they had money and they had time and they had really smart people to work with. And orthopedic surgeons call themselves as the gorillas of medicine and they underestimate their intelligence. It's, it's a very smart kind of surgery with a lot with a lot of complications, aging patients, for example, and athletic injuries and trauma. And so it's a very, it was a very nice laboratory. And they embraced the ideas, and that's all I wished for, was to embrace the ideas. And Karen and I have had a really nice time for 15 years helping them translate some of this stuff into real curriculum planning, real faculty development, real assessment toolkits and uh, and to publish as a part of their everyday activities. They, uh, next year, they will begin to train fellows in medical education uh, on a competitive basis around the world. Now, for me, every time I think I'm the teacher, I end up being the learner. <laughs> and it drives me crazy. But I've been fortunate enough in the last 10 years to take uh, ideas like motivation and translate them to people who live in northeastern India and southwestern China and, and Spain and uh, where all of these cultures interact with these ideas in very dramatic ways. I mean, to go to the Middle East and teach about some of these things, you know, particularly self-directedness and all of that, without accounting for the culture that you're trying to teach in, is an incredible thing. So I've ended up learning uh, way more than I can ever use and enjoying every bit of it. Purpose was to take what we know about change and turn these people into change agents. People who could, that is, the, the surgeons as teachers of other surgeons could become the change agents that bring about better care. I remember in India there was a course and they were trying to teach them how to use a very fancy implant for a, a low bone injury. And the, the implant was uh, expensive and, and difficult to put in, required a lot of staff and a lot of time, and it was perfect if you got it right. And in the back of the room, uh, an Indian surgeon raised his hand and, and the teacher that we trained, and I was there, said, excuse me, sir, thank you very much for a beautiful presentation. He said, but can I do this with wire? And th that's the kind of thing that, now, the answer to that question isn't, no, wire's inappropriate. The answer to that question is, let's figure out how to make it work with wire. 
because you can't afford this implant and you can't put it in. So let's make the wires you can use work. And it's a metaphor for the whole thing of, of trying to adapt what we, the solutions we've created with our body of explanations, our theories. How do we translate those into in points of application that is respectful of the point of application and its context? I can't thank you enough, Bob. I, I hope that every time I talk to you, I feel like I renew an energy about how rigor and how this can be done right. And I find myself walking away for a year or two without interacting with you and kind of losing sight of it. And so my hope is that those that had an opportunity to listen to this podcast find that same energy. Dr. Fox, absolutely a pleasure. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. And thanks for doing the series. Thank you for listening to the Alliance podcast, continuing conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay updated on future releases. In the meantime, we invite you to access our wealth of continuing professional development content on the Almanac at almanac.acehp.org. Until next time.